This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Nathan Heffel. Investigators from the DEA's Denver office say they had a powerful case against the nation's largest drug company. That is, until Justice Department attorneys and DEA's own D.C. lawyers stepped in and, as investigators say, let the company off easy. The story is described in a recent report by The Washington Post and 60 Minutes. Washington Post reporter Lenny Bernstein joins us. Lenny, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. You've been reporting on the nation's opioid crisis for a while now, and we hear a lot about drug makers like Pfizer and the doctors and hospitals who write prescriptions and the opioid users. But this story is about McKesson Corporation. They're the middlemen in this process. They're the distributors. What did DEA agents uncover? Uh, Exactly right. Um, You know, these middlemen are huge companies. McKesson is the fifth largest company of any kind in America, right behind your Walmart and your Apple's uh, ExxonMobil. What the DEA uncovered was that for the second time uh, in the last 10 years, McKesson was sending millions and millions of opioids to pharmacies and other places across America without Uh, fulfilling its requirement under the law to report suspicious orders. Suspicious orders are unusual patterns or frequency or amounts of drugs being ordered by those dispensers. Can you give us an example? I know there's a drugstore in Denver uh, around Brighton, Colorado. What was suspicious about sales to that store? Um. Typically, it goes like this, and I believe that Mr. Clausen at that uh, Platte Valley Pharmacy uh, did do this. Uh, one day, one month, I asked McKesson for 50,000 opioids, and that is enough to satisfy the customers, the legit customers that I, that I have out there. And then a few months later, I asked McKesson for 150,000 opioids for that month. Why would a single pharmacy need that kind of growth in opioids over that short a period of time. The law requires that the distributor, McKesson or Cardinal Health or Amerisorts Bergen, those are the three big ones, that they hold off on sending those opioids, check things out, and most importantly, notify the DEA. But McKesson didn't do that. And so essentially, there's thousands of pills going out a day to these places, and it's it's unheard of that, that a pharmacy would need that many pills going to, to, to users. Is that correct? Well, some places need in tremendous numbers of opioids. If you uh, are a pharmacy next to a major medical center, you are going to order large numbers of opioids. But it should be relatively steady. You're not going to order a lot more in June than you did in May. And that's what was happening. And that is the classic suspicious order. And exactly who are the people buying pills from pharmacists like the one in Brighton, this Jeffrey Clausen? Well, in, in that case out there near you, there was a drug ring that was buying from Jeffrey Clausen. Uh, it was uh, a, a group of people, I believe 14, and they were paying Jeffrey Clausen to give them opioids for cash uh, or uh, illicitly and then they were selling them uh, in, in and around uh, Metro Denver and uh, down into Oklahoma. So I want to be clear. How, how does McKesson fit into all of this? They're the supplier. They the, – the, the drugs are manufactured by a number of companies. Then they're given to McKesson. 
and then McKesson supplies, sells them to Mr. Clausen and tens of thousands of other pharmacies across America. Uh, I hasten to point out most of them are totally legit. The vast majority, probably 99 percent, are just doing their job the way they're supposed to do. But every once in a while, you run into a Jeffrey Clausen and it only takes one because one illicit pharmacy that's not being uh, – uh, made to toe the line by the distributor can put millions of opioids on the street. And I want to know, McKesson has a warehouse in Aurora and, and other places uh, as well. So there's this two-year investigation by the DEA. They bring the case to Justice Department attorneys and the DEA's own attorneys in Washington. What happens then? Well, there are two sides. So uh, you, you, it depends on, on who you want to believe. And, and the point of our story was to to give readers the other side that they didn't get when the settlement was announced in January. What the investigators say is that they went across the country. They found McKesson warehouses like the Aurora one. They call them distribution centers. Had been pouring opioids into places without reporting suspicious orders all across the country from Sacramento to Florida and that they built this terrific case and they – uh, handed it to the attorneys on a silver platter uh, and they wanted criminal charges against McKesson, which had, has never been done before. They wanted a billion-dollar fine and they wanted a bunch of those distribution centers shut down for a number of years to really make uh, a, a strong statement, a message to the rest of the industry. Well, if you watch cop shows, as we all probably do, you know the lawyers are – are concerned with what they can prove in court. Mm -hmm. They were much more cautious. The U.S. attorneys said, well, we don't know if we can prove intent, so we're not sure we can bring criminal charges against McKesson. And the DEA attorney said, well, this fine is probably worth more like $150 million than a billion. And then there was some arguing over the shutdown as well. And so this really is the case of a DEA field office wanting one thing and their own attorneys in Washington moving forward with was something really very different. There was that $150 million fine when, of course, the, the agents wanted something close to a billion dollars, if I remember. Very, very different. Yes, the agents wanted a billion. The attorneys uh, settled with McKesson for $150 million. And that's where the acrimony began because the investigators say that the attorneys were scared, that they were going to go up against the fifth largest corporation in America with – tremendous amount of resources, money to pay high-priced private law firms and the DEA doesn't have that kind of resources and the investigators, the fellows, uh, uh, Mr. Schiller who we quoted, Ms. Copang, they said basically that the DEA retreated from battle and decided to settle. The lawyers, of course, the DEA uh, say that that didn't happen. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. We're speaking with Lenny Bernstein. He's a reporter from The Washington Post. Uh, the Post and 60 Minutes have reported on a DEA investigation out of its Denver field office, where investigators say they had a strong case against McKesson Corporation, the nation's largest drug company, for doing some pr pretty bad things. But they say federal attorneys let them off very easily. Uh, how much is this an issue of McKesson's executives not paying enough attention to these sales? Is it possibly they weren't even aware of what was going on kind of at the lower levels? Well, we don't know how high up this goes. So clearly someone in that Aurora warehouse and the other 11 warehouses across the country had to know that these orders were coming in because they were filling them. So Pharmacy X in uh, Livonia, Michigan is asking the distribution center for certain amounts of, of 
opioids and suddenly it goes through the roof or they ask for a lot more or more frequently, those guys know. Mm-hmm. So how far up from the warehouse does it go to the executives in San Francisco? We don't have an answer to that question. Uh, but clearly Mr. Schiller of the DEA felt that it could be proven that some high-level executives did know and had intent to let this go on because he wanted to arrest them. Not really. It's usually about money. Money. Um, yeah. I have – it's about money. Uh, I, I you know, have tracked some of these the, – the, the clips and the, and the history of some of these cases and usually it comes down to a sudden need for money, a divorce, a gambling debt. Uh, some of these guys are uh, substance abusers themselves and they become addicted and uh, they, they, they see – they're handling what is essentially um, legal heroin and they see an opportunity to make a lot of money very fast. And in your reporting, what what comes next for these agents, these local offices, and going after these larger larger corporations? Well, we did another story in October that showed that Congress took away, right in the middle, right at the height of the opioid epidemic, took away their uh, immediate suspension order, which is their most powerful tool. They can no longer meet the standard that Congress uh, has set to immediately shut down a large warehouse like the one in Aurora. So the first thing that a lot of people want is for that law to be repealed or amended. That's what the DEA is saying, that Mm -hmm. there are changes that need to be made to that law. The next thing is to go back at these companies. But there has been a shift in tone. They sidelined the fellow who uh, was really being very aggressive with them and they've adopted this more friendly attitude towards the industry. And the idea is that maybe if we work in cooperation with the industry, they will help us more. Uh, a lot of people don't believe that's going to be the case. So we're kind of in flux right now. We're a new new Justice Department, a new Attorney General, and it remains to be seen what they're going to do against these major corporations. Lenny, thanks so much for joining us. Anytime. Lenny Bernstein is a reporter from The Washington Post. The Post and 60 Minutes have reported on a DEA investigation out of its Denver field office. Investigators say they had a strong case against McKesson Corporation, the nation's largest drug company, but they say federal attorneys let them off easy. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. The movie Our Souls at Night, starring Robert Redford and Jane Fonda, is one of the biggest films to come out of Colorado in 2017. Hello, Lewis. Hello. Miss Moore. Addie. Is everything all right? Can I talk to you about something? Sure. The film is based on a book by the late Colorado author Kent Haruff about a retired widow and widower who are neighbors and strike up an interesting relationship. Today, we take a look back at the year in Colorado film with Donald Zuckerman. He heads the state's Office of Film, Television, and Media. Welcome to the program. Thank you. Pleasure to be here. Our Souls at Night is truly a Colorado story. It's set in a Colorado town. It was filmed in Florence and Canyon City. What do you think a movie like this does for Colorado's film scene? Well, I think it's fantastic. First of all, it's Netflix. Uh, Netflix has hundreds of millions of subscribers, 
Uh, I think Robert Redford, Jane Fonda is a huge draw. Reunited again? Reunited, I think, what, the third time? Yeah, yeah. And uh, I think the fact that uh, the, the, it's based on Ken Harris' novel, I'll bet I'd be willing to bet that the sales of that novel have gone through the roof since this movie came out. And I think that we we show the, the beauty of Colorado. We show these small towns, uh, Florence and Canyon City, and I think it's uh, really a great thing for Colorado. So it will maybe draw film tourists to Colorado. I, I believe it will. I think that we've seen uh, film tourism all over the country. Uh, the, uh, the, the Stanley Hotel in Estes Park has benefited from it for forever. The Stephen and King book, of course. Exactly. Yeah. And the uh, Field of Dreams in Iowa was a great example. Right. Switching completely to another style of film, another movie that came out this year is called 7852 by Denver filmmaker Alexander Philippe. It's a documentary about Alfred Hitchcock's iconic shower scene and played at this year's Sundance Film Festival in Utah. Psycho you felt could happen to you. This was the first movie that showed you can be naked, alone in a shower, and someone who is going to come in and just stab you. So, so what is the Colorado connection with this film, and why did it strike you as such an important film this year? Well, first of all, it's a work of genius. I mean, the, the film is just fantastic. It was way beyond anything I expected, even though I was really familiar with Alexander's work prior to this. And obviously, the the uh, film was not shot here, but it was made here. Uh, Alexander worked here. It was written here. It was edited here. And the end result is just fantastic. And uh, Alexander has been invited to film festivals all over the world as a result of the finished product. So it's getting definitely some buzz in the film industry. A lot of buzz. And uh, I know they have a distribution deal. So uh, a lot of people are going to see it. And I think that uh, it's, you know, something I can't imagine any film student in the world not wanting to see this movie. So has there not been documentaries done about the shower scene? It's so iconic, of course, in, in, in history. Uh, not that I've ever uh, seen or uh, or heard of. I think this is it. And when Alexander first told us he was going to do it, I was a little skeptical. Like, how do you make a 90-minute feature film about uh, a shower scene? But he totally pulled it off. And you learn so much about Hitchcock and the way he worked by watching this movie. What's another Colorado film um, that came out in 2017 that, that really stood out to you? I really uh, loved Hondros, another documentary. Tell uh, me about that. Yeah, it's about uh, Chris Hondros, who was a, uh, apparently a very famous uh, uh, war correspondent, uh, would uh, take photographs in incredibly dangerous places. And when I saw the film, uh, I recognized so many of the photographs. I had seen them in the New York Times or in, in newspapers and magazines. And uh, he died a tragic death uh, but because he lived a dangerous life. Yeah. But it's a really interesting film about somebody that we, we, we wouldn't know about but for the film. Now, this film received state film incentives. Quickly, what makes it a Colorado film? Uh, what makes it a Colorado film is, uh, is, again, a documentary generally can be shot anywhere, but – uh, it's th these documentaries are basically written here in post in post production. I see. So that made it a Colorado film. The money was spent here. 
So, so the money was given and the money was spent. Yeah, and, yeah. They, and they only get the incentive on money that's spent here. So if they license footage or license music elsewhere or something, there's, there's nothing – Colorado doesn't help them with that. Let's look ahead now to a project that will film in Colorado next year, Freak Power, directed by Robert Kennedy III. This is a film about gonzo journalist Hunter S. Thompson's run for sheriff of Pitkin County. Uh, much of it will be filmed in Silverton in the southwestern part of the state. And it received a $300,000 rebate to shoot here in Colorado. When will that start to, to film? Well, I spoke uh, to uh, Bobby uh, uh, maybe a month and a half ago, and he told me they're going to start in the spring, and he now has a distribution deal with a major distributor. I, I don't know that I'm at liberty to name the company. And, uh, you know, I think the only uh, – they've, they've got the money to make it. The, que- the only question is, as always with films like that, is casting. They need the right person to play Hunter S. Thompson. Because the Denver Post reports the budget for this movie is is around one point eight five million dollars, so it's a big big budget film. Yes, well, I, I would say that's a moderately budgeted uh, <laughs> I don't feature know. film. <laughs> yeah. You know, big budget Hollywood pictures uh, tend to be sure. over a hundred million dollars. So one point eight million dollars is not a lot of money for a movie, but you can make a good movie for that. And and I'm sure he will. I read the screenplay; it was very interesting, and it's a you know a time. Uh, in Colorado that uh, has to, to, has disappeared. <laughs> and I want to give a quick uh, mention that Top Chef, uh, season 15, a TV show was shot in Colorado, which was also a big hit for the state. Uh, but but I, want to, I want to turn to something your office is getting more invested in uh, lately, which is this cinematic video game. Uh, the idea that there's these video games that are almost like movies. Westminster video game developer Idle Minds, which recently relaunched at Deck Nine Games, was approved to receive funds from the state's film incentives program earlier this year. This is the only way. I feel like I took the shot a thousand years ago. You could use that photo to change everything right back to when you took that picture. I can't make this choice. No, Max. You're the only one who can. Seems very dramatic there. Uh, this is a trailer from the game Life is Strange Before the Storm. Briefly, what qualifies a video game as cinematic? Well, first of all, the, the law as written, the enabling statute uh, included video games. And it's about content creation. Uh-huh. It's not necessarily about being cinematic. So uh, what's great about uh, Deck Nine or Idle Minds, which what they used to be, this is these – we've done uh, two – uh, deals with them. They make interactive games for young people, so they're 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 basically G-rated, uh-huh. and 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 the uh, person playing the game can kind of decide which way it's going to go. Here, here you have a choice: you take the road to the left or the right. Uh, uh, almost like the uh, the choose your own adventure books when when I was a kid, where you could like turn to a page if you made a choice. Yes, ah, exactly. So, uh, and and this company literally had maybe five or six employees two years ago and now has 65 employees. And they have people with who work there with credits on movies like Avatar and King Kong. I mean, they brought amazing people here to Colorado who are, you know, really great for our film scene here. So do you see this industry growing in the state? Yeah, I hope it grows. I mean, it's, you know, there are more 
more games have done over a billion dollars in business than movies. It's a huge industry, and I, we'd like to get much, much more of it here. You're with Colorado Matters from CPR News. We're speaking with Donald Zuckerman. He has the state's Office of Film, Television, and Media about the year in Colorado film. Um, let's talk briefly about Colorado's film incentives program. Each year, state lawmakers decide how much money to put aside for this. Uh, the funding is kind of like a rebate. Can you, can you briefly remind us what filmmakers have to do to qualify? So they have to uh, – uh, basically, the, the rebate works on money spent in Colorado – and uh, they have to hire at least uh, 50% local. Uh, a lot of the films that are made here are made locally, so they hire pretty much 100% locally. And uh, they, everybody has to pay taxes. So uh, the program really doesn't cost that much. I'd I, I just like to give you a couple brief statistics, if you don't mind. Sure. You know, since the inception in 2012, We've had $98 million in, in reported qualified production spent, and, and there have been $14 million in incentives, $12 million in tax collections. So the net cost of the entire program for five years was $2 million, and we've gotten better at it. And in 2000, uh, fiscal year 2017, the, the program actually netted uh, a profit for the state. But this this program does have its critics at, at, at Colorado's capital. Its, its budget was slashed from three million to seven hundred fifty thousand for this fiscal year, and a Colorado audit found millions were misspent. Though there has been some pushback on on that report, um, you've said that the incentives program does create jobs for Coloradans. Is is there a is there a measurement for that? How are you making sure that that's actually happening? Well, the each uh, production has to file a report that's audited by a Colorado CPA and uh, we see how many people were hired. And we know that since the inception of this program, there have been over 2,000 crew hires and over 600 cast hires on completed projects. So we think that this is, you know, it's a, the, the thing about filmmaking is that it's a craft and you get better at it the more you do it. So, when we started this program uh, uh, almost six, five and a half years ago, uh, we didn't have much crew here. And now we can make a movie. We can last summer or the summer before last, the two movies were being shot here at the same time. And we crewed them both. And, and there was also discussions about misspending of funds, including promising money that wasn't there. You, you disagreed with some of the audits, audits conclusions. What changes have been made or, or will be made following the concerns found in this audit? Well, one major change that we've made is that we have hired an analyst. And, and the idea is that the Colorado CPA turns in a report, and according to the auditors, some of the CPAs made mistakes. And now we have somebody who will review each audit report, sign off on it or not. And, and uh, nobody will get paid unless the... Uh, uh, un uh, unless and until the CPA's report is uh, basically audited again by our uh, in-house analyst. And, and the other thing is we now have a, uh, a handbook that we've developed for the, uh, the CPAs. So they can see exactly what they're required to do, and they will also be required to meet with the analyst ahead of time and basically be trained. 
In the governor's budget recommendation for 2018, he's again suggesting $750,000 for the budget. Lawmakers will decide on that amount next year. Uh, what if the budget gets trimmed? What's going to happen for, for your office? Well, actually, in the governor's budget, there's the seven fifty plus an additional million two fifty. So the governor is suggesting two million dollars, but ultimately it's up to the legislature, and they represent the people, and it's up to the people of the state of Colorado. Do they want this program or not? Thanks so much for joining us. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Colorado Office of Film, Television, and Media Commissioner Donald Zuckerman. See trailers of some of the films we talked about today at CPR.org. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. The brown cloud, as it was called, was the symbol of pollution that hung over Denver in the 80s and 90s. Even today, there are still notices about air quality along the Front Range. What if I told you the key to solving some of the region's pollution problems could be a six-year-old boy? Here to tell us how is Dr. Jonathan Samet. He is the new dean of Colorado School of Public Health. Welcome to Colorado Matters. Uh, Thank you, Nathan. I'm glad to be here with you. Before we get into some of the things you'll be working on as the new dean of the Colorado School of Public Health, let's talk about that six-year-old boy. Who is he and what is his role in bringing you back to Colorado? Well, uh, my son uh, came to the University of Colorado a long time ago for the reason that anyone would come to rock climb. And uh, here he is many years later with a six-year-old and a three-year-old grandson. And I will say when your then five-year-old grandson says, are you going to come live near me? There's only one answer. And you're going to bring, of course, your expertise uh, along with you. Uh, but but your coming here is, is more about family ties, isn't it? Well, it's about family ties and, and a tremendous professional opportunity, the Colorado School of Public Health, uh, a, a rising institution in a state that I really like. You, you've talked about reaching out to different constituencies like the rural and medical communities in different ways, perhaps using social media to do so. Uh, do you want to take the public, uh, the School of Public Health in a different direction than it has been going? No, I think I, I want to deepen that mission. I mean, as, as a state school of public health, uh, we are about advancing health in the state and, mm-hmm. and, and, and in the region. And I want to make sure that our ties grow stronger and that we do a better job of getting our work out to everybody. And, and that, that really means whether people are out in, in rural areas or sitting here in, you know, on, the, on the front range. Are, are you taking a, a less scientific, less academic approach to gain buy-in and for, for what you're doing? No, I think we will continue to do the groundbreaking research that we do. Mm-hmm. But what I want to do is make sure we're doing the best job we can of disseminating that research and saying what it means. Uh, In a way, Colorado is very much the laboratory for the researchers at the school. And I see that part of what we want to do is give back what we find and say what it means. So how do you do that? Yeah, there's a a lot of ways. And we have groups out who are educating, who are out in the communities, who are hearing from the communities what their problems are. But I think what I want to see is more. I want to see us reaching better to the policymakers Air quality is a great example, environmental issues. You know, if we do a study showing there might be a problem or that people are drinking or breathing things that might be bad, we need to get the message to the decision makers. 
We mentioned uh, the brown cloud, which isn't as prevalent as it once was, but but obviously air quality remains a concern. What are some environmental issues specific to Colorado that you'll now be working on? Yeah, so let me let me say that uh, I remember I remember the brown cloud well, and you know sitting and waiting to be on the show and seeing the mountains. That would not have happened at this time of year, thirty or tw- even twenty years mm-hmm. ago, probably. So ozone has risen as a problem here, and I think that reflects the growth of uh, the city, more vehicle miles traveled, and and the environment, altitude and mountains, uh, hemming airflow. So I think understanding those issues, our, our school is uh, involved in looking at some of the issues around uh, environmental contamination. Of course, there's interest in uh, the oil, natural gas industry and its consequences, and we have groups looking at those uh, at those problems as well. So as I settle in and understand uh, this area, well, I'll get a better fix. I will say just looking back, I spent many years in New Mexico and dug deeply into the uranium mining story and my reach extended up to Colorado then. And that's a story that's sort of coming to an end, but one that I will be looking at again. So you're looking at all of these things, oil and gas and, and all of that stuff as well. I, I, I do want to talk about Colorado. Of course, we, we have to talk about marijuana. Uh, what role has the state's booming cannabis industry had on air quality here? Is there any impact? Now, that lick I don't know. Um, and I will say that I see what has happened with cannabis as it's a critical, I will say, experiment in in social policy and that I think we do very much need to make certain that we're gathering the data that will inform us about what are the consequences. Yeah. Uh, and, of course, a pioneering state in this, but many are following. And, uh, and I think for every state that's moving to – Legalized cannabis. We we need to make sure we understand the consequences. So definitely something you're focusing on, but but less so on the on the the, the environmental impact of it, but but the public health impact. The public health us. impact. Yeah, and mm-hmm. and I will say already the Colorado School of Public Health has a state funded study on uh, driving and uh, impairment, which is a Im- very important issue. Which of course you'll be continuing to to look yes. at. Recently, there was a study that said Colorado is the 11th most polluted state in the U.S. Uh, Denver is a lot smaller than Chicago or New York or, or, or L.A., but it's still up there in terms of pollution. What factors are contributing to this ranking? Yeah, so so looking at that, I think you're probably referring to the American Lung Association's mm-hmm. yeah. uh, sort of rankings. And Colorado comes out not so good on ozone. Consistently. Consistently. And that that's not the brown cloud problem. That was particles. Okay. And, uh, and Colorado's old problems were particles and carbon monoxide. Ozone reflects the rise, the sprawl, the traffic, the sunshine, and the altitude. So it's sort of a downside consequences of the environment. Uh, so things that are just already here, that are naturally here, that are just setting up these things. Well, these, that's these. right. But And I think the recent report that you may be talking about out of uh, the groups in Boulder uh, looked at what are the sources, what drives ozone. And it's too many of us. It's vehicles. And then it also is the uh, energy extraction industries. What about growth in Colorado? Of course, we're, like you said, we're booming. Uh, some might say pollution is kind of the cost of becoming a world-class city. Yeah. So – I mean, Colorado is doing a good job of putting uh, in Denver and mass transit and uh, and moving in that direction. But more people, more vehicle miles traveled, more emissions feeds into the ozone problem. And, you know, of course, as people turn to hybrids and electric cars, hopefully this will begin to uh, begin to change. But with the large metropolitan area right here between Denver up to Fort Collins, which also stands right. out not so well in those rankings, uh, 
there's work to be done. And, and it's not a short-term solution. It's thinking long-term. I can think of people uh, that love Denver because it's so close to the mountains. They can escape the city less than an hour, be in the, the clear air of the mountains. But a recent report says that's becoming more difficult since pollution from along the Front Range may be traveling into the high country. Can you explain that a bit? Yeah. So these masses of pollution move. You know, they move with the winds. They move with 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 nature and they can travel. I mean, this this is true. Look, there's pollution here that's come from China. And, you know, we know that these large pollution masses go around the world several times sometimes. So I think what we're seeing here in uh, Colorado is ozone generation uh, here. And then it, and, and you're right, the prevailing winds will take it up into the mountains at times. So from a public health standpoint, how do you address something like that? Yeah. So, you know, it's – I mean, I think the solution long run lies with air quality management. For the short run, the public needs to understand, particularly those who are susceptible, that high times of ozone, maybe it's not the right time to be running around uh, outdoors. And, for example, people with asthma maybe think about – need to think about bringing a rescue inhaler with them. Yeah. Uh, I, I want to speak about your, your work outside the state. You recently attended a conference at the Vatican on air pollution. Um, it, it seems like Pope Francis has taken a very active role in environmental issues like climate change. But I also want to talk about the, the political stance that many people have at a time when science and environmental issues like climate change are increasingly being debated, uh, looking at instances like the U.S. withdrawal from the Paris Climate Change Agreement. Do you feel what used to be accepted as scientific fact is coming under more scrutiny? I actually would say it's a little bit different. I think okay. the scientific evidence stands, but I think the dismissal of the evidence and its replacement by belief, opinion, is perhaps what's going on. I mean, uh, you know, for someone to say the evidence on climate change is uncertain and there are uncertainties is quite different from saying, let's say, it's a hoax. And uh, and I think, uh, you know, the the evidence on climate change, we'll stick to it a moment, five massive reports from the inter- Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, merging consensus about the consequence of human activities for the climate. And, you know, to set aside that evidence based on belief, there's not a dismissal. It's not because the evidence is being discredited. It's it's being replaced, I think, is a better way to get at this. Really briefly before we wrap up, uh, when people think about pollution, they think about breathing, but there are all kinds of connections between air quality and health. You've studied the relationship with obesity, even autism and suicide risk, for example. What are some of those relationships? Yeah, I'm, it's a, it's amazing how as we've explored what air pollution might be doing, how the list goes up. I mean, people are concerned about accelerated brain aging, for example, uh, autism has been explored. You know, the evidence is mixed but says we ought to keep at it and try and better understand. The concern about pollutants we may breathe in or perhaps have in our water that may have metabolic effects and increase diabetes risk. The uh, field is opening up new uh, new questions. But I would say at the same time, we have certainly had enough evidence to guide air quality regulation. And the fact that the brown cloud is not here anymore, really, we can go back to sort of science-based regulation and say it worked. Looking at these relationships then, is there an argument that could be made that our environment is making us sicker or at least perhaps introducing or fostering illnesses that, that we haven't faced before? Well, you know, that the idea that we illnesses that have changed, I mean, the autism example may sit there. I mean, we've had 
a great deal of difficulty explaining this rise of um, of, of these d- disorders. Um, so I, I think at the same time, we have shown that we have benefited from lowering pollution. And back, my colleagues at the University of Southern California have done some very prominent work showing that children's lung health is better in Southern California since air pollution levels have gone down. So we've shown the benefits. And then I think on the other side, yep, we have more to understand. Thanks so much for joining us. Yeah, thanks. Dr. Jonathan Samet is the new dean of the Colorado School of Public Health. He joined us to talk about the work he hopes to do on Colorado's air quality and the impact it has on us. Hayden Kennedy was considered one of the best mountain climbers on the planet, scaling some of the most demanding peaks. This past October, Kennedy and his girlfriend were caught in a backcountry avalanche while skiing in Montana. He survived. His girlfriend did not. The next day, Kennedy committed suicide. Chris Kalous was Hayden's good friend and mentor. He joins us from his home in Carbondale. Chris, welcome to Colorado Matters. Thanks. Glad to be here. Chris, Hayden grew up in Carbondale, and you were quite a bit older than he was. Uh, You were teaching high school when he was in middle school. He considered Mm -hmm. you a mentor, but you talk about him as someone you looked up to. Yeah, I mean, I met Hayden when he was in eighth grade. And at that time, um, I was running a band where with students and he came up to play saxophone for us. And so um, I got to know him there. And then, you know, over the years, there's some sense that, you know, I helped teach him how to climb, but he progressed so quickly that, you know, he surpassed what I could do within years. And then we were just hanging out as friends and, uh, and, you know, equals in a lot of ways. He had this natural raw talent. It sounds like, um, after his death, his parents released a statement that described their son as an uncensored soul. To someone who knew him so well, what does that mean? Well, I mean, you, we throw this word around a lot these days, authenticity. And uh, there, there was just an authentic quality to who Hayden was. And I'd say that, you know, there, there's the word charisma and, and, and charm comes to mind. But a lot of times those words sort of seem like maybe somebody's gaming you or not really that interested. But anytime you interacted with Hayden, you know, uh, his interest in what you were saying, what you were doing uh, was just so genuine all the time. And what other ways did he impact you? Um, you know, I just, uh, just going back to that, just he, he, all of his friends that, that knew him older, younger, whoever always just talked about how he was wise beyond his years and um, sort of seemed to, again, teach lessons to people about, how to live uh, just in the moment, even though that sounds cliche, but, and, and live for the best reasons. And so I just took a lot from that. And, and as, as I got older as a climber and uh, was climbing with him as a younger climber, just so much energy that I could, you know, just hitch my cables to and, and uh, just get so much energy from him. He kept some of my love of climbing alive over the years. And he came from an, a pretty active family in terms of climbing and skiing and things like that. Isn't that right? Yeah, absolutely. His father, Michael Kennedy, you know, was one of the great alpinists of the late 70s and 80s, uh, was the editor of Climbing Magazine for a very long time. And, you know, his mom is just this incredible fireplug outdoor lady who just goes forward on skis and and uh, has lived that life up here in Carbondale, you know, kind of exemplifying what that outdoor life up here is like and just took Hayden along for the ride his whole life. You said you were in awe of Hayden when you climbed with him. You called him a soulful climber. For someone who really doesn't know much about climbing, can you describe what that means? 
Yeah, it's kind of a it's kind of a tricky thing to describe, but um, you know, there's climbing is a game, and there's a lot of ego involved in climbing, and uh, you know, sort of gamesmanship, and people want to promote themselves with climbing. But that was never Hayden's deal. He uh, just loved being in the mountains and um, loved climbing just for kind of personal, deep reasons, and you know, always teaching us how to sort of approach it with you know, without a ton of ego and without everybody else's judgments in mind, which can be a game, especially with social media, which he totally avoided um, of just kind of trying to prove yourself all the time. And he never did that. Five years ago, Hayden and a fellow climber set off a firestorm in the climbing world when they removed bolts from an uh, that an Italian climber had left on a Patagonian peak. Uh, Hayden was lauded for free climbing the peak for the first time, but he was criticized mm-hmm. by some climbers and arrested after his descent for pulling those bolts that other climbers had been relying on. How did he react to that international attention, and, and why did he, he pull those out? Uh, well, if we have another hour, we could totally <laughs> get into the ins and outs of what that meant. But um, he, he, he removed that route um, for the longest time. Since it was actually the day it was put up um, in the early 70s, there was a lot of controversy over the methods of how it was done and the amount of bolts, which has always been an issue in climbing. And it had been talked about for years as being kind of a, a you know, sort of a criminal act in a lot of ways among true mountaineers. And so Hayden was finally the one who, who decided to, to take it down. And uh, the effect was interesting. You know, much of the climbing world lauded his his achievements and in, in doing that because it had been so long and, and, you know, the wait for it to, to come down. Uh, but, you know, there was a lot of climbers who felt like he had sort of destroyed history and it was not really his right to do that, especially the Argentinian community down in El Chaltan, the, the town uh, beneath Cerratore there. Um, and his arrest was a little bit overblown. It was kind of to protect him because a lot of people in the town were actually threatening uh, those guys, when they came down, um, there was a lot of anger about uh, the removal of those bolts. Hmm. Hayden had lost two close friends in climbing accidents in the past several years. I, I want to read a passage from a blog he wrote about those mm-hmm. losses weeks before his own death. He says, Waves of sadness overwhelm me at times, making it hard to stand up or focus. At other times, I'm able to think only of the enchanting adventures, contemplative conversations, and the simple yet enriching moments we shared as friends. These pendulum shifts between various emotions will never go away as I'm starting to learn. Were there hints that Hayden might take his own life? Uh, I don't, you know, we, we've talked endlessly about that as his friends, and I don't think we had this indication that, that he had this pension or this idea of taking his own life, and I, and I don't think it was there. I think there was a circumstantial, you know, rise that, that, that led to it, which, again, we could talk about for a long, long time. Although I, I do believe, you know, he had spent the last year mourning uh, or last two years, almost mourning the loss of those guys. Um, I was actually on that same trip that he wrote about in that in that article, um, and so I, I think it was a factor in what happened in his decision. Just looking at the the pain he had felt about that, and then thinking of the pain he would feel about Enga. So his girlfriend, I mean, Enga Perkins. Yeah, and I just I just don't think we had an indication anywhere that that he was suicidal in that sort of traditional sense where we saw the, the factors leading up to it. Um, I think we just feel like it was this moment that overwhelmed him. 
there was a huge memorial service for Hayden in Carbondale where he grew up and where his parents still live. People came from around the world. How was he honored at that gathering? You know, it was uh, it was a classic, very classic you know, climber sort of memorial. Most of the people that cl- that that spoke, uh, you know, were family members. But then uh, the most of the rest of the the people had been climbing partners of his. Um, it was a gathering that was, you know, both filled with sadness, but also, uh, you know, with climber gatherings, we end up talking and telling stories and and end up laughing and and. Uh, you know, thinking of the good times as well. So it, it was it was outdoors, which was lovely and um, just an incredible event. And shoot, it felt like half the town was there. I want to close with one more passage from Hayden Kennedy's blog written just weeks before his death. He wrote, quote, it's difficult to accept the fact that we cannot control everything in life, yet we still try and maybe our path changes to something totally unexpected. Chris, thanks so much for being here. Thanks a lot for talking, and uh, just remember Hayden. Hayden Kennedy was one of the well-known Coloradans who died in the past year. He is part of our 2017 Remembrance Series. His friend and mentor, Chris Kalus, spoke with us from his home in Carbondale. Finally today, an original new take on the old holiday favorite, Baby It's Cold Outside. You know the song where the male host attempts to persuade his female guest to stay over for a romantic evening. Written in 1944, the song has been recorded over the years by the likes of Ray Charles, Dean Martin, Dolly Parton. Well, now you can include Denver soul man Nathaniel Rateliff in that list. And for his version, the duet roles were swapped. Here he is, joined by his friend and fellow Denver artist, Julie Davis. I really can't stay Baby, it's cold outside I've got to go away Baby, it's cold outside The evening has been Hoping that you'll So very nice I'll hold your hands They're just like My mind will start to worry Outside, recorded by Nathaniel Rateliff and Denver artist Julie Davis. I'm Nathan Heffel. Have a great holiday. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I simply must go. Baby, it's cold outside. The answer is no. Baby, it's cold outside. The welcome is been. I'm lucky that you so nice and warm.